Like many of you, I've experienced heartbreak in my life. I was in college, was dating a young woman. I was fairly certain that she was the one for me, as they say in college. And, and, and things looked like they were heading that way. She and I were talking along those lines. And one thing about our relationship, though, is it was, it was sort of out of bounds in a biblical way. And I won't go into any more detail than that because that wouldn't be appropriate, but you can put two and two together and figure out what I'm talking about. We were not obedient to the Lord, and the relationship began to kind of spin in a different direction. And uh, out of nowhere, she ended the relationship, and I was heartbroken. So for months, I grieved. And one of the things I continued to grieve about was I just felt like I had blown God's plan for my life, that this was the one and she was plan A, and I had been taught by people in churches that I was in at the time uh, that God had a straight line that he wanted you to follow, and if you obeyed all his commands, then you would stay on that path, and if you messed up at all, then you could end up way out here, and you'd miss out on all that he had for you, and you effectively would be stuck with plan B. And so I, I grieved because I think and I've just, I have done something that has irrevocably screwed up my life. I was driving home from work one day and I took my eyes off the road, which is my want. And from time to time, I get a little distracted, a little ADD, so no surprise. And I was turning a corner and I ran into the back of another car. And uh, it was my fault. I knew it when I did it, but I was already stretched thin economically. And on top of that, the person who got out of the car did one of those, oh, oh, I think I'm dying. And, and, and you're like, oh, I'm going to get sued. I know I'm going to get sued. And then I, worst though, was I knew my insurance rates were going to go up because they were already sort of on the bubble as it was. So I was really anxious and angry with myself and with God. And I went and I knelt down before the Lord that night and, and I began to vent. And in that time of prayer, I had an experience that I can only explain by in terms of saying, the Lord used my reasoning, my cognition, His Word, and a variety of things, and I believe His Spirit, to engage me in a conversation. And as I, as I did so, um, what I sensed the Lord asking me was, did, do you think that I knew from all eternity that you were going to run into the back of this car? And my answer to that was yes. And then the sense I got was, do you not think then that I planned in advance for your mistakes? And I remember that triggering a kind of a domino effect because I remember thinking that's directly related to this mistake I made with this relationship that God knew in advance. And so the whole notion of plan A, plan B kind of went out the window. And I realized God has no plan B. There's just his will for your life. Now, obviously from scripture, there is a moral will. There's two distinctions there's this will where his word says, uh, you shall not do this, you shall do that. And it's always against his will for you and I to disobey his law. And so when Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's not talking about the, the zigzag life of opportunities and experiences that come your way. He's talking about the perfect law of God. In our lives, we do have this path, but the path is one where God knows in advance even our screw-ups. 
And he's going to provide for his children because, well, because he loves us. God's providence is the subject du jour in our new study in the book of Esther this summer. Our subject for the summer is God's providence over all of our decisions. God would have to have providence over all things or he couldn't write the book of Revelation and tell us how it was all going to end. He'd have to know or you couldn't write, okay, in the future, this is definitely what's going to happen. The story of Esther that we'll study this summer is befitting a summer blockbuster movie. It has characters, it has intrigue, it is a true story that is more riveting and real than Game of Thrones. And uh, it's certainly cleaner in a lot of ways. Final book, it is uh, the final book of the Old Testament historical section, and its theme is God's providence, not only in the life of Esther, but in all of its characters, and most notably, all of God's people and the history of God's covenant people. The word providence itself comes from the word provide, two parts of it. The first, pro, it's from the Latin forward or on behalf of, and the second, vide or vita, vide, which is to see. So, so practically what that hashes out, the definition of providence is God seeing to the universe, the universe which he has planned everything that will happen, everything in creation is under the providing care of God. And not only does he supply all things, he arranges them according to his plan for his glory. And for Christians, that should provide a tremendous sense of peace and comfort, even when it appears that all is against them. The world may be fond of saying things like, all things happen for a reason, but that's unreasonable. How would you know that if you didn't believe in a God who is loving and caring? It's a nice thought, but there's no concrete evidence of that. What we see from Scripture, though, is in the gospel and in all of the stories that point to the beauty of the gospel, our confident reality that is captured well in the Heidelberg Catechism in question 27 when it concludes that all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I love that. It's saying that a father reaches out and cares for his children, and Jesus echoes these same sentiments. So today, we begin to look at the setting of Esther and unpack how God's providence rules over all of our sin. And I mean all of it. The sin that has created problems for us, sin perhaps that others have done, sin that is done in the people, and we see it in the lives of the people in our lives, who may influence us in a certain way, and the sin that comes from the highest level, highest levels of power. We are going to do this by looking at an Old Testament book that never once mentions the name of God or the Hebrew religion. So how does one do that? Well, that's the joy of this summer. It's a discovery process. There are three evidences today of God's providence over sin that we're going to look at in Esther 1. The first is over Israel's sinful choices. We're going to find out how Israel got where Israel is in rejecting God's rule and the problems that created for the people who lived in Susa in Persia. 
Then secondly, we're going to look at God's providence over royal choices, which is the reduction of the queen by the king himself and the rejecting of the king, which is what the queen actually did. And this is the people in high places, the people who can influence lives, the sinful choices they make, God being sovereign and having providence over that. And then thirdly, when we look at authority, at the highest level of law, of power, we look at God's sovereignty even over the king's decrees. So we begin to set the stage, and the first thing we'll do is look at God having providence over Israel's sins. And I'll take you back to the first three verses of Esther. We haven't read those yet, so if you're thinking, where was I when this happened? It hasn't happened yet. You have stayed for the end. All right, verses 1 through 3 read, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, I hate that, and well done, Abby. You are a, a, a name reading machine, which is why we're doing this whole somebody else will read the scriptures before we preach thing. Because we're just going to call him the king, or Xerxes, as he's called in Greek, because I don't like his name at all. The king who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. This story is set during a period when the Persians dominated all of Western Asia and Egypt. Cyrus the Great actually was this terrific empire builder. He was the grandfather of King Xerxes. He began somewhere in the mid-6th century B.C., allowing the Jews who had been held in captivity for about 100 years to begin going back to the promised land. But you might ask, what were the Jews doing exiled in the first place? How did they end up in this place of Persia? There was a rebellion. God's people in Israel and Judah uh, rejected God's rule in their lives. They looked away from God's law. They ceased to meditate on it day and night and be careful to do everything that was written in it. They were generations of Israelites who disobeyed the Father. And as a result, after repeated warnings and challenges to repent, they ceased uh, to have the favor of God, and God handed them over to their enemies, specifically the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar. And then eventually... The Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and those Persians were led by the aforementioned Cyrus the Great. It was Cyrus who determined to let the Jews go back to Israel. Some exiles did go back, but they were the minority. The vast majority of Jews stayed in what we call now modern Iran and Iraq because they knew that going back to Israel just meant hard work. The walls had been torn down, the temple had been torn down, their houses had been ransacked. It was basically like starting all over. If you're somebody who does home renovations, it's like a lifetime of home renovations. I mean, you were going to spend the next 80 years, basically the balance of your life, fixing up your house and your city. And they're like, who wants to do that? Uh, You know, whatever we have here has got to be more comfortable than that. But there were some who stayed and, and that is that group of people who we will highlight in the book of Esther. Now, the point of all this at this point 
is that Israel had rejected God's law and followed their own instincts, which led to their exile. So this creates problems for the next generations of people, problems that they didn't create. And God has said that he has providence over Israel's sin. And one of the things that we can take obviously from this is God's still actively involved in these people's lives, that he hasn't given up on them, that just because they blew it in this pretty enormous way and they ended up exiled and away from their homeland, it didn't mean that God stopped talking to them. In fact, he's constantly pursuing them. Do you see the gospel in this? I I hope so, and I hope all throughout this study you do. Even though we were exiled from God through the sinful rebellion of our first parents, God didn't forget about humanity. He didn't even forget about Adam and Eve. He immediately made a covenant of grace with them and all of their their children. And from all eternity, he decreed that Jesus would come to earth incarnate, God as a man, so that we could see the glory of God and he could save us from our sins. It was God's will. So how did God will? How did he providentially oversee all the mess-ups and everything to get to a point where a beautiful end is the result, the glory of God? We see the grace of God in a beautiful new way. And all because God had determined that. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 5, 18 and 19. He said, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus, led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Elise Fitzpatrick writes this about the book of Esther. The book of Esther is not simply a morality tale about a few faithful Jewish people who stand up for God in the midst of a pagan land. More fundamentally and splendidly, it is the story of God's desire to glorify himself and make his son beautiful in the lives of alienated, weak exiles from covenant faithfulness like us. So we can see God's providence over the sins of Israel. That's how they ended up in this place. And yet still, having ended up in this place, God is engaging them. God is working in their world, working in their lives. Now that we've set the stage for the book of Esther, now we're going to actually set the stage for the person of Esther within the story and look at God's providence over royalty's choices. We'll get to the text here that was read now. Esther 1, verses 10 and 11. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I skipped over the names because, frankly, let's not go there, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king uh, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, the main character in this book, obviously, is Hadassah, or Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. She was the child of the exile, uh, born to Jewish parents in Persia, parents who decided not to go back to Israel. However, when her parents died, she was raised by an uncle in the capital city, 
and we'll get to know her next week. The main character is in this introductory scene, and that's the way we're going to build this, is the opening scene of a drama. Our king, the king and queen of Persia, who really ultimately serve the purpose of creating space on the stage for God's woman, Esther. Uh, the king, um, his name in Hebrew, actually had, he had a real name in Persian, translated into Hebrew, it was Ahasuerus. It's also known in Greek as King Xerxes. So we're going with Xerxes, because frankly, that's easier to say, believe it or not. His family had ruled for a long time. As I mentioned, his great his grandfather was Cyrus the Great, and uh, he'd been ruling for 21 years. He was a principal architect. He, he was really responsible for the creation of this citadel, this great city of Susa, and took great pride in it. Um, he chose Vashti to be his queen. And uh, like other kings of his era, his longing for acclaim and glory and honor cho- uh, really created an environment of uh, pride. So he had these great festivals. It says 180 days long in the first chapter. What that means, though, is that practically over a six-month period, he would have brought different waves of people from the region in to celebrate his greatness. We see this in our modern day. Every now and again, you'll see a kind of an up-and-coming dictator have a have a parade, you know, and they'll capture this visual of the dictator standing above the people. And then this parade of military equipment comes across the front of him and everybody salutes him from a high atop a rocket launcher or something. And he stands there, it's always a he, with, uh, with, with great pride. And it's all dem- to demonstrate, don't mess with me. I am the king of whatever world I'm in right now, and I plan to take over the world. And this was really ultimately what Xerxes was after. The historian, the Greek historian uh, Herodotus hinted that these lavish banquets were thrown to grease the skids, the political skids, with all of these people around his region, all of these leaders, so that they would agree to go to war against Greece, and then he could be the ruler of the whole world. And in the end, Xerxes would get nowhere near this because he ended up getting uh, executed by the, the head of his security, Secret Service. It's pretty interesting. Um, Xerxes' queen, Vashti, was this woman of great beauty and had likely come to her place and status of royalty in the same way that we'll see later in the uh, later in the story, Esther get to that place. Now, I don't want to be a spoiler, so I'm not going to give away too much, but let's just say they have a, a Miss Persia contest. Anyway, in this particular event in uh, Esther 1, Xerxes is, is saying there's no cap on how much you can drink, and so he's seven days into his cups, as they say in the South, and uh, he's had more than a couple of drinks, and so he's not like thinking wisely. I mean, that's what merrymaking to the point of inebriation will do. It will put you in the place of foolish decision-making. And there are a series of big gaffes he makes here. First off, his wife Vashti, the queen, is having her own festival. Verse 9 of Esther 1 says she was having, while he was doing this thing over here to show off his stuff with all of his military and provincial governors, um, they're all men, um, she's over here with the women folk at the castle, at the, the, the headquarters, and having her own banquets, 
And he just decides he's going to interrupt that thing and, and, and doesn't really think about her. And I would tell you from a guy who's been married almost 29 years, um, uh, that is not a good move. You've got to check with your wife to make sure she can schedule with you. Secondly, uh, in, in many ways, his big decision of foolishness was the king and husband, mind you, decides to take his queen and wife and parade her in front of these military leaders in a way as to objectify her, to stand her in front of them so they can ogle at her lustfully. And obviously, this is a reduction in her great significance as a woman, as a child of God, and in their culture as the queen. He basically reduces her to a sex object. Now, she then rejects the king's request. And for details' sake, you need to know that there were three, this is like a threefold offense in that culture. One is she's a woman talking to a man, you know, re- denying a man. And, and then secondly, she's denying her husband. And these are things in patriarchal cultures where women just had no power and she basically had to do what he said. And it may be important at this point to caveat out here to say once again that when we say biblical infallibility, when we talk about God's word being the final authority for all of life and practice, that doesn't mean that the things that are recorded as historical events are things that we think are good things. In the Bible, you have things that are described and things that are prescribed. Thou shalt not kill is a prescription. The description of the mistreatment of a queen and her objectification and a patriarchal culture that diminishes women and makes them less than equal to men, these are not things that are prescriptive. We're simply describing the way the world existed in this pagan culture. We reject that. In every way, shape, or form, women are equal to men and equal in every way, created in God's image and image bearers. They are oftentimes critics of Christianity, at least the biblical Christianity, seem to think that they can randomly walk into the Bible and put their finger on a passage and go, see, as if just the existence of slavery in the Bible seems to mean that we endorse slavery. It was just a depiction of what was going on in those cultures. Caveat over, let's get back to the message. Um, the third thing that was an offense was that she was, in fact, a subject of the king. So she'd obviously violated some patriarchal cultural rules, but one that had nothing to do with patriarchy was she was, in fact, telling the king, I'm not going to do what you say. And she had to know, at the very least, that that was going to be a problem Um, And as you'll see in later chapters, Esther was really aware of this as well. But at this point, I'd argue that Vashti did the right thing. Um, She did. She she had to know her choice was going to result in some consequences. But if that was my daughter, I would have told Vashti, you leave him. He's a bum. What's he doing? Whatever the case Sometimes what we see is that people of royal position make decisions and in their places of privilege, 
think that they are the kings and queens of their collective destinies and those of others. And what I'd like to suggest is that what we can learn from this section of Esther is knowing what we know about where everything is going, the decision-making of uh, any group of particular royals would not necessarily thwart the plan of God. Uh, in, in our case, oftentimes, um, there are people who have effectively a royal position in our life. We, we, at times, find ourselves at the mercy of people more powerful than we are, and it can cause you to lose hope. Uh, it, that sense of being subordinated to some other person who has greater influence than you do would make you feel hamstrung and trapped. And what we know, because we can see the end of not only Esther, but the entirety of God's story, is that people are pawns, loved pawns, but pawns nonetheless in God's greater plan of restoration of God's people and the glory of Jesus, his son. God's providential plan supersedes the plans of all those in high positions. I hope you see the practical reality of this. There's no one on this earth that can deter God from accomplishing his will. And whoever you've considered royalty in your life, someone who has, you know, a person who has, you think, undue influence over the outcome of your life, not even they or their sinful decisions and actions can thwart the plan of God for your life. God is providentially over even the sinful choices of people who might have, it seems in this world, a little bit of undue influence in your life. God has providence over the sinful decisions of others. One of the scriptures that has been of great comfort to me is Proverbs 21.1, worth memorizing The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You think somebody's got royal personhood? Whatever they decide, if God decides to do something different, it's going to happen. God's just going to speak and their heart's going to go another direction. Confidence in God's providence should provide peace for us. And you don't have to go beyond the place of our own salvation. The cross to see that God uses the evil actions of those with influence to accomplish his good ultimate purposes. This is the beauty of the cross for us and why we come back to it all the time because it shows us that even Jesus, the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, who from all eternity has been God, that he even let himself as part of God's divine plan be abused by sinful people to bring about an end that would produce our salvation. We wouldn't be sitting here together celebrating life and worshiping God if someone, namely Jesus, hadn't been treated unjustly as a means to accomplishing God's purposes, namely that he would suffer in our place so we wouldn't have to. This is the beautiful reality of God's providence over people. And then finally, in our setting the stage of Esther, we look at God's providence over all authority. And in particular, we're talking about power. 
In Esther 1.19, the sycophantic buddies, the unwise counselors of Xerxes say, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. You hear in their voice this panic. You see in their actions injustice. If you've ever been sued by someone or someone has been, if you've ever been audited perhaps by the IRS or some like really powerful body, you know how frightening that can be. You know what it's like to get a legal notice or a judgment against yourself. And in this case, King Xerxes foolishly listened to his advisors who gave exaggerated counsel saying Vashti's actions threaten the state. Um, and it, and it appealed to his ego, which was hurt because she didn't show up for the party and he was embarrassed. But in reality, the decision to go out and, and basically hamstring all the women of this nation under this really tight controlling action that basically threatened them that they were never to ever speak up or they'd end up like Vashti. This kind of injustice was a real kick in the stomach this, this would have had an amazingly painful effect on the women of Persia. And oftentimes in our world, we feel like there are people in power making decisions that negatively affect our sense of well-being or our sense of what human flourishing would look like. And there are times where that will cause great anxiety. Um, uh, a couple of quick pieces of advice. Don't watch Meet the Press before you come to church on Sunday. It does not encourage worship or thoughts of peace. Uh, that or any other news program where you basically got two sides of a political debate not listening to each other and just trying to shout more loudly than the opponent. It's exhausting. Here's another free tip. Don't read the comments at the end of news articles. Oh, those are brutal. It's just evil people yelling at evil people and... And every now and again, aren't you tempted to just jump in? But then you think, I don't want to get into this. And more than not, if I bump into a lot of that in culture, I find myself saying, oh, Jesus, just come. You know, Lord Jesus, come. I've had enough. You look around the world, you see crazy people running countries. I won't name the countries. I won't go there. Uh, but you, whatever it is, if you have an ongoing sense of anxiety about how powerful people in the world, governments, laws, are going to negatively affect your world, and it creates a level of anxiety in your life that basically keeps you from being joyful, you have potentially, and I can say from experience, gotten your eyes off of the big picture, which is that while in this moment there may be an injustice taking place, and it may be an injustice that you feel at some vocational level that you need to try to do something about, but in the end, Xerxes ends up dead. We know the end of this story. I mean, yeah, in the short run, he gets some things done that are not nice, but it's not like it doesn't end badly for him. So if you're looking for justice, you just got to keep reading in history. And, and what we know is that God has this overarching providential influence over everything. You think supercomputers are impressive. I regularly watch space movies and hear commentary about, 
You know that that original computer that was on the Apollo 11 had less computing power than that Apple watch you have on your wrist? And I think, yeah, I know that. But guess what? The God of all creation has more power than all the Apple watches in the world. He, he's managed to fix and determine and work all things together, as the scriptures say in Romans 8, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We see the gospel a lot in Esther. I hope you will. Israel was in exile. Human beings are exiled from God in their sin. Jesus is our solution and the one who will liberate us from the sting of death. He is providential over all our choices, knowing from the beginning of all time what we do with our lives, even the lives before we met him. And he still managed to find a way to help you come to a place, enable you to believe and understand the gospel. And here's the beautiful truth of the reality of God's providence over all sin. In time and space, Jesus Christ, the historical figure, and let's go ahead and say 33 AD, he died to pay for your sins. Well, that was nearly 2,000 years ago. When he died, he was paying for sins you haven't even committed yet. That's how he is providential over all your sins, past, present. And so many Christians are like, this God's grace, I blew it again. It's like, well, Jesus died for that too. He died to take care of you, to provide graciously for you. Mercy, friends, is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. This is the promise of Scripture, that Jesus would provide for us even when we mess up. Obviously, there is no plan B. Carolyn and I will celebrate 29 years this summer. Our two children, college graduates both, they're not accidents. They weren't like God's plan B kids. They're, I mean, God had a plan and somehow or another melded together my foolishness and sin to get me where he wanted me to be so that these children could come into the world. And Carolyn could suffer for three decades. <laughs> I mean, he has a plan. It may not always be beautiful, but it's a plan nonetheless. I kid. Carolyn's only suffered for 25 of those. The last five have been a lot better. (laughs) Jesus Christ was our providential solution to sin, and his mercy and grace are promised to redeem lives in exile. I close today with another thought from Elise Fitzpatrick. There is something even deeper happening in the book of Esther beneath the drama of court intrigues and character models. God is ruling in heaven, undisturbed by the defiance of those on earth who persist in trusting in their power, beauty, rituals, and ambitions. We remember that God himself chose to accomplish the greatest triumph of human history through the lowliest of means, a pregnant virgin, a rejected and crucified man, bread and wine, and the foolishness of a message that abases mankind and exalts a crucified Savior. Let us pray.